This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome back. Welcome in. This is Country Roads Confidential at Earsports. Dot com part of the CBS Sports Radio Network. I am Mike Casaza. Monday morning time for questions and answers about West Virginia football with my co-host Chris Anderson. Chris, I apologize on behalf of the Utah Utes for letting hey, you down on the second straight parlay. Yeah, I. You're apologizing to me. I should apologize to you for being the one to bring up to end our podcast on Saturday night of. Hey, let's go watch these last two games that we're both in good position with right now. And if they both win, we win a lot of money. Like, what kind of rookie nonsense is that? Talking about winning a lot of money on a bet before the bet is over. Like, I I, I can't believe I brought that up because naturally, right after that happened, Utah got spanked um, and and killed that parlay. And then my UNC one, which was looking great at the time of the podcast i mean i think it was i had was it minus 19 and the under on 72 and it was like 34 points at halftime or 30 points at halftime and and unc was up 20 and man i think they got scored like 30 points in the fourth quarter alone including like the backups getting like a ridiculously dumb touchdown with a couple minutes left and lost by three so not great, but it's my fault for bringing it up. But we'll get back on track this week. I don't know what I was thinking, taking the road favorite in a rivalry game. And, like, not only a rivalry game, but, like, that that BYU-Utah Holy War is serious. And yeah. seven points, man. But I contend that, it, first of all, it was 10 nothing, which is my spot for the late-night game because it was 14 nothing in Cal the week before, and Nevada came back and took care of business. It's 10 nothing. Utah scores 10-7. Utah's driving in the first half. Both from the two. And I'm just thinking, man, you were down 10 nothing. You're working so hard just to get back level in a rivalry game. Don't go for the touchdown here, right? Just take the points and take level and go into halftime and say, hey, we're back to square. Let's do it. They run a garbage play. BYU stuffs it. BYU goes the other way and scores, and it's all downhill from there. Um, never the same. Taking money from the needy there. I'm not happy about it. But, again, I, I kind of blame myself. I should have known better on that one. I just like the spot there. Seven got it actually at six and a half. And I thought Utah was really good the first game, and, and Charlie Brewer added some things, and they had great offensive and de- defensive line advantages. But um, I guess to the point here, new Big 12 member, BYU, that game's going to be a pain in the ass a lot of road teams to go to that stadium is kind of feisty sometimes the the altitude is going to be a, a nuisance for teams going there the time differences are going to be fun and and BYU's maybe got it back on track I'm not sure they're going to be as good as they were last year every year but the the coach they stuck with he's got his feet in the cement now things like look like they're supposed to look there they have a good offense they're going to have mature trenches every year just because of the way they build their rosters 
Um, I know a lot of people talk about Cincinnati being in the top whatever, UCF getting back to where people projected it would be, Houston scoring first against Rice. Let's just say that. <laughs> but, man, BYU is like the, the, the team that everybody kind of forgets about when it comes to these four, I think, that come in and uh, unfortunately issued just a timely reminder that they still play pretty good football there. And, again, that's, that's not going to be a fun road trip for teams. No, it's not. And it, it and seeing that crowd, it was yeah. – you're right. It's a tough place to play. But, it, I mean, it looked like one of the most amped up crowds I think I've seen in college football yet this season, like of any game of anywhere. Uh, and it was at BYU for that game. So um, added some tough opponents. I think the immediate reaction from some people, including maybe myself a little bit, was – Oh, Oklahoma and Texas are out, and I don't think they've added anybody that's tougher than those two. And, I mean, it's tough to play in Austin. It's tough to play in Norman. But playing at BYU, playing at Cincinnati, as long as they don't force them to play in that crappy Bengals stadium and instead, you know, keep them in Nippert, even though it's smaller, like just it, it's, it can get, uh, you know, intense in there, even with the smaller crowd. But th- this is not going to be – uh, you know, a cakewalk of adding four teams here. Is it hard to play in Texas? <laughs> I guess not. What do, doesn't West Virginia have a winning record in Austin, or at least even? Yeah. I, I think, have, I think I'm trying to, if I remember this correctly last year, they had more, they had, did they win more games in Texas than Texas had won in Texas in the Big 12 or something like that? For yeah, I think so. Is that like that? I had to look that up. I told that, and Chip Brown was blown away. Yeah. So, so West Virginia is four and four and two in Austin. So, I guess it's not that hard to play in Austin. Never mind. Take it back. You know why it's hard to play in Norman? Because Oklahoma is really good every year. Yeah, that helps. And Texas is not the case. So that's that's an interesting comparison that you mentioned. And then they added a tough home venue there. It's it's a good place. Um, I don't know. And then we can get to some of the Big Twelve stuff because. There's nothing else to talk about this week. There's not a big game on Saturday. But we do have some questions that I think are worth answering, including one I have to ask. I don't have an answer to. Um, but Saturday, Virginia Tech, noon, FS1, a second rivalry game in the non-conference schedule, which is pretty cool, pretty rare nowadays. And <laughs> West Virginia is a three-point favorite, and I'm not sure how. I'm not sure how much that jumps and how fast that jumps. I haven't seen it move yet, but... I think if you look at West Virginia's first game and you kind of just take some of the explanations from the coaches at face level, a lot of first game stuff, so to speak, and that they still had a chance despite a lot of errors that maybe aren't transferable in West Virginia to play cleaner against a terrible team on Saturday, but penalties, turnovers, by and large, diminished more toward the the uh, unblemished play that you want to have and maybe you see later in the season that as opposed to the first game. And maybe that's kind of who and what they are. That's how the line gets to negative three, which is pretty much the stainer for a home team. So I think odds makers think this is kind of an even game, which is maybe what you would expect. But Tech's up in the, the top whatever in the rankings now at 2-0. and um, Two very good wins. Took care of their business at home after stunning top 10 UNC. But a road underdog coming to Morgantown for the old Black Diamond Trophy. Surprised? A little bit, yeah. Uh, I thought it. I thought it might be uh, plus three, like a for Virginia Tech is like a field goal favorite being on the road. Um, I'll try to figure out why. Uh, my immediate reaction was, hey, their offense hasn't looked that great. I mean, only 17 points against UNC. Uh, they ended up with 35 against Middle Tennessee, but that was a tight game. 
at halftime, I believe. I think it was only like 7-7, 14-7, 14-14, uh, something along those lines. Yeah, 14-7 Virginia Tech. So it wasn't like they completely blew out Middle Tennessee there. Um, and there's side of this, I, this is an amazing schedule for Virginia Tech. Yeah. The only away game they play until Halloween is this week in Morgantown. So they haven't played on the road yet, which is a thing. You know, there is home field advantage. Uh, Vegas takes that into account. Uh, a lot of, you know, people always ask me about the, the football power index for ESPN and why it switches so much. That, that heavily favors uh, home field for teams that can really swing percentages like 10, 15, 20%. And so you look at Virginia Tech's schedule and it's home UNC, home Middle Tennessee State at West Virginia, then home for Richmond, home for Notre Dame, home for Pittsburgh, home for Syracuse. Like only one away game in the first eight weeks of the season. Not only that, if they get that game Saturday, there's a chance they're 7-0. and yeah, I mean, Notre Dame's obviously the toughest team yeah. in that first, you know, eight games there. And, like, they looked very beatable, obviously, since Toledo almost beat them. Florida uh, State almost beat week. Yeah. So, and plus, God. I mean, hey, everybody that's angry and mad in Morgantown, just remember, things could be worse. A lot worse. Like, Florida State worse. So, just keep that in mind. Yeah. <laughs> Horrible Hail Mary. Not even really a Hail Mary, right? Yeah. Kind of a catch and run. Terrible play. Go look it up. And uh, again, 66 nothing against LIU looks bad. It doesn't look as bad as what happened to Florida State at home on Saturday against an FCS team. Um, I don't want to take too much of the, the air out of the room here because we're going to get to these questions here. But as you have slept on um, that game and, and the big storyline for sure coming out of it, anything changed that we may have put on tape, so to speak, I can ask you on Monday, Chris, so to speak, um, about your Jared Dagey, Garrett Green, I don't know, Will Crowder even. It seems kind of silly to put him in here, but your your process there about what to do or how it was handled. Anything you feel differently about they might have Saturday night? Um, I think I, I still, the only part I really question about the rotation on Saturday because they had a plan in place, Dagey, Dagey, Green, for the drives and then go back to Daggy. And I was okay with him completely finishing out the half. I even, I love the fact that they went back. If Daggy's your guy, I love the fact that they went back to, Hey, we got, was it 40 seconds and we got to get down the field and try to get some points before half, even though they obviously didn't need the points. I liked the, uh, you know, the practice, the in-game actual practice of trying to get in position for a field goal at the end of half, because that's going to come in, big down the road you have to be able to do that against better teams and when the games are tighter uh i still don't understand daggy coming out to start the second half um i mean i know there's a a a thing about hey you always want to have like one drive with a guy after halftime to see how things go this again this is daggy's fifth year more or less as a starter you know at part-time and full-time depending on the year uh he doesn't need that that's not that's not what he needs work on that first that first drive after the second half. So I don't think, uh, you know, his his process during halftime and his mental state coming out for that first drive needs to be checked. So I didn't understand that uh, they ended up with the same number of snaps, which yeah. I thought was interesting because I like exactly the same because I at the time I was like, why is Daggy getting more snaps than green? 
And he was. He, I mean, Green only had that one drive while Daggy had six or whatever it was before finally gave way to Green and Green really went for a few a few drives there in the third quarter. But not too much has changed. Um, it, you know, I didn't like didn't get my answers on the deep ball with Daggy. Didn't look great. He had a couple in the middle, uh, but those those deep balls down the sideline were not even close which was something, you know, I, I wanted to see. It's something you could you could see even if he was playing against air. You know, it wasn't dependent on how bad the opposing team was, but I still didn't see anything good there. So that was a little concerning, but not much has changed from my view Saturday night. I'm more entrenched on one idea, and I've come around on another. Uh-oh. No, 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 I'm good. I, I mean, I I do believe that, that, um, that it was smart to put Daggy back in. Because one, challenge him again. It's his adversity. And if this if this is a quarterback, whatever you want to call it, competition, convenience, controversy, whatever you want to call it, if it's a thing, like let's see how Daggy responds. And if, if Green goes in and does the thing that's going to make the crowd happy and, and make the teammates happy and make the offense look a little bit different, then again, Daggy's on the spot. So let's let's see what he does. And it wasn't pretty, but he went down and scored. And then again, I like the idea of putting him in at the end of the first half. That's fine. Make it work. Um, what I would pivot on is something I thought about. I don't like the idea of playing him in the third quarter because what do you need to do? Except that they were not good in the third quarter against Maryland. And this goes back to like Holgerson, like coaches are kind of obsessive about coming out of the locker room. And let's be honest, West Virginia has not been very good going into the locker room. And sometimes there is bad momentum, confusion, chaos, disorganization coming out of the locker room was not good at all in that third quarter against Maryland. And that was by and large, one of the reasons that the, the game went the way it did just a flat third quarter. Hey, let's work on adjustments here because it's probably going to be like this the rest of the way, like, like this. It's probably going to be like Maryland the rest of the way, not like Long Island. Halftime adjustments, let's rehearse, go out. You get one series, two series. Practice. It's kind of what it is. Is it a rehearsal game? Is it a practice game? Sure. Do it. Use it to your advantage there. So I can see that purpose there. The other one is that Neil Brown did not do this for the fans. He did not do this to have people show up and be like, hey, Let's see what Garrett Green has to do. He went in there because functionally you're going to see something more like what you saw Saturday than what you're going to see in your head in a regular course of game action. Green's going to come in and play a series, maybe two, but it's going to be Daggy, Daggy, Green, Daggy. You're not going to see Daggy, Daggy, Green finish the half. In a normal course of events, it's going to be like what you saw Saturday. And Brown was, again, using the 60 minutes and the however many snaps, the four quarters, to simulate what it's going to be like. It's a game. You don't get too many of them, and you don't get a lot of practice conditions in a game. So let's go out and let's actually do, in this game that counts, with as close to competitive but also non-consequential conditions as we can get, and put it out there and see if it works. I guess inconsequential would be the word, not non-consequential. But you don't get a whole lot of those opportunities during the year. So let's run our regular script during a normal competitive game, even though the consequences don't exist here. Like, we're going to have a lot of net we're working with beneath this. Let's go out and do it and see if it works. And it wasn't for the 50,000 people there. It was for the you know, 99 people in uniform who, who want to see the team get better. And I think that is the question right now. And I'll ask you this before we get into the questions. Are they better now, however you want to define it, having executed this plan and seeing what Green can do, how Daggy reacts, and what you have with two quarterbacks as opposed to one? I think so. One, it gives you the option, lets you know that at least 
Green is competent when he gets in under the lights. I mean, I know it was LIU. I know the other team wasn't that good, but keep in mind, there were still 50,000 fans there. It was still a big home opener. Uh, it was still some pressure because it, it wasn't just your normal beat up on an FCS team. Let's throw you in there. Green will never admit this. He will never, ever, ever admit this. But he hears what people are saying. He hears people calling for him to play. He hears people talking about it on radio, on podcasts, putting it in stories. He hears the fans. It, you you couldn't miss it. I mean, Mike, you were there that when Garrett Green came into the game was one of the biggest cheers of the game. Or at least it sounded like it on TV. Mm-hmm. Um, so he hears it. That adds some extra pressure to it. So it wasn't just, hey, go in there and beat up on a crummy team. There was some added weight to his appearance in this game. And, and he reacted. So I think that at least gives you the options, shows you like his mental state, mental fortitude in those situations. And and I think Brown knows he has that option to go in. And I like your point about how Daggy responded. At the very least, at the very, very least, this lights a fire under Daggy's butt. I'm, I'm sorry, I, I'm going to say butt because you already are giving us the explicit content tag from earlier. But sorry. <laughs> just kidding with you. but it, it, I think at the very least Green's performance lights a fire under Daggy and, and, and lets him know hey I don't have time for you know you to screw around you're either good or you're out and, and so I think even though we said all week long there's only so much you can take from this game against LIU I think that's one of the few things we can I like it Workshop the takes, everything's good. Slept on it. And I like that we didn't we didn't pivot too much. We didn't go one eighty on what we thought. We we dug in and we have some uh, a fresh layer of paint on some of this stuff. That's good. Um, another reason I have that game is to have a lot of thoughts, a lot of comments, a lot of critiques, questions, criticisms from the subscribers at earsports.com. Chris, reach in there. Questions, yeah, let's get- answers, let's roll. Uh I, I just want to give a quick shout out to SJJSWVU4. Because uh, you've told me beforehand, we can't. We need more time to think on this to give a proper answer. We might just make this a separate thread on the message board. But we both really like this question, but we want to perfect the answer. Uh, he asks, and, and for those listening, pop on the board or, or tweet at us or whatever your thoughts. Along the lines of the infamous UConn and UCF rivalry, the conflict trophy, uh, if you could make a name up for the future WVU versus Cincinnati, Cincinnati rivalry, what would it be? Also, what's your trophy looking like for this game? This is so good because the civil conflict was so bad, but so endearing to the coach for UConn, who was Bob Diaco at the time, not your boy Randy Edsel, brought up this completely nonsensical rivalry and, and, and the trophy, I believe, that they designed. Yeah, and they call it the civil conflict. What does UConn and UCF have to do with one another? Nothing except that the word conflict has FL Florida and CT Connecticut in the same word. So like the word conflict was like the FL and the CT were capitalized, which makes it a rivalry, I guess. I honestly think that like the coach was sitting there was like, oh, I got something. So I spent way too much time on this. I couldn't find a word. That has WV and OH in there that I could do the the conflict thing with. Um, I I thought about 
whatever that Cincinnati and, and Morgantown or Ohio and West Virginia, I, I tried to find things they had in common. I, I looked at Skyline, Skyline Chile, Skylines in Cincinnati, and then like, you know, Morgantown, West Virginia has mountaintops, views, vistas. I tried to do that. Listen, I put too much work in it and I don't have a worthy answer. It's too good of a question. <laughs> I love it. I think it's a great question. One of the reasons we should do this more often to throw it out to people because there's got to be somebody smarter than me. I really hope that somebody smarter than me, more creative than me out there that can do this. Um, I'm puzzled. I put time into it. I apologize. I don't have an answer, but like, I think it's such a good question that we have to give it a chance to, because I have a feeling that the internet and college football Twitter would embrace a, a redux of the civil conflict with Cincinnati and West Virginia somehow. Okay. Follow-up question. Which of the teams leaves it on the field after they win the game? And doesn't take it home. <laughs> That's the best. Yeah. For, the, for those who don't know, yeah, yeah. For those who don't know, as Mike mentioned, UConn created created this out of thin air, made the trophy, brought it down, and UCF beat them. And then UCF was like, I'm "Not taking that. This isn't a rivalry," and just left the trophy on the field. I love it. I just I thought about it and. I just I can't come up with something there. There's got to be something. I don't know. I just there's got to be something there. Um, I know people who are from Cincinnati. Obviously, know people from Morgantown. I'm gonna get them in a room together, and we're not leaving until we get an answer, unless the listeners can come up with something too. So please help me out here. Don't make me lock my friends in a room together. Um, all right, one more uh, kind of Big Twelve question for the pod, and then we'll turn our focus back to the to the Mountaineers specifically. Uh, this is from JAL one two three four. After the changes take place, will the new Big 12 be seen as weaker, the same, or stronger on the national scene? Cincinnati is currently ranked higher in football than any Big 12 team except Oklahoma. So, perspective here matters. Which of the Power Five has been, um, I would say, annually accepted into this? It's going to be, like, like, no matter what the conference does, the conference is bulletproof. There's only two, really. It's the Big Ten and it's the SEC. And right. I think the Big Ten joined that conversation because their offenses changed. They they brought in, you know, spread style offenses, you know, fleet skill position players because they were tired of getting boat raced by the SEC and some of those like schools that use speed to their advantage. So everybody else, Pac-12, Big 12, ACC, even the ACC with national championships, they all kind of get clowned a little bit because they don't have a lot of success in the CFP. And I know that sounds strange because Clemson's been pretty good, but what else has the ACC done on the map? But the Big Ten and, and the SEC, I think, are kind of like separate from this. So what's the Big 12 losing here? You're losing Oklahoma getting in. As long as the Big 12 is included in the CFP, the expansion model is going to have, I don't know, 12 teams, eight teams, but you're probably going to see some automatic mechanism where a Big 12 champion is going to get a spot in the expansion one, that's really all that matters at this point. This is what I wrote about on Friday. So make sure you're getting in there. But now you're you're opening it up to everybody. And then the more teams that get in from a conference. So like if let's just say in like a, a six-year span, West Virginia gets in once, UCF gets in once, Cincinnati gets in twice. You know, let's just say that there's like four teams in six years that gets in. That's a heck of a lot better than Oklahoma getting in six straight years, I think, because the reputation for this new Big 12 is that it's going to be a really fun conference. It's not going to be dominated by Oklahoma. And the wish, the hope, the desire for Texas to be back. That's all the Big 12 was, was 
can Oklahoma actually win a game or two games in the CFP? Is Texas coming back? Nobody looked at the Big 12 in the CFP and said, is this TCU's year? When's West Virginia going to get in there? Oklahoma State deserves a chance in the CFP. Kansas State had a good team that one year. Why aren't they in there? No one thought that. It was always Oklahoma and then one day, maybe soon, Texas. So now, if you market this, push this brand this the right way, a new Big 12 is going to be fun, predictable. We're like legitimately maybe like six teams could win it any year because what I think the big takeaway is the ceiling may not be higher in a new Big 12 because you do lose Oklahoma and maybe a back Texas. The basement's better. Like the basement's going to be a lot higher because the worst team, I think, is going to be able to do a little bit better, especially if like Kansas gets his act together with Lance Leopold, if Texas Tech either makes the right coaching change or if Matt Wells gets better. But I, I think that because it's not so dominant and top heavy with 10 teams that you're adding teams that make the ceiling maybe not better, but your basement a lot higher than it is because you're adding four teams that are competitive but aren't going to run away and hide from anybody there too. People that I talked to said that that's kind of the selling point internally is that, listen, we lost the two apex teams in our conference. There's no replacing them. Quality is out the door. We can do something with quantity to account for quality. Let's add four very good teams and let's make our confidence more competitive more thoroughly as opposed to more competitive at the very top. I'm torn. Mm. I, I'm trying to think of how I want to answer this because, one, you're right about the bottom. Like, think about the four teams that West Virginia just brought in. They are better than, like, say, Wake Forest, uh, better than Georgia Tech most years, better than a couple of Duke most years. Uh, go over to the Big Ten. They're better than, uh, well, I was about to say Rutgers, but I'm, I'm apparently a Rutgers homer now. Yeah. I'm all in on that. Uh, they're better than Illinois most years, better than Purdue most years. And you, you keep going around to the different Power Five conferences, and the teams that West Virginia brought in routinely – are better than the bottom of these other conferences. So it definitely lifted the floor. My thoughts on, we, at the very beginning of your, uh, of your comments there, you mentioned that the Big Ten wasn't really in part of that infallible uh, duo at the beginning, and then it changed. And I think it changed because Ohio State, and that was it. Like Ohio State was just amazing for a long time. And if you have that one dominant team, you can do that. And I feel like the SEC kind of went the other way. I mean, obviously Alabama's been the one dominant team, but they've really gained their reputation by having six, seven, eight teams that are in the top 25 every year. I don't know if the Big 12 will be able to do that with the new Big 12. I mean, I don't think any conference can, basically, except for the SEC. Um, but I I'm a little torn on, is it better to have that one marquee name because if you could just have that one marquee name, like say they win one national championship, like if Oklahoma, if Oklahoma had won the national championship three years ago, four years ago, whatever, like up Big 12 is no longer a joke. Like, you know, you can't make a joke about the Big 12 for a few years because they just won a national championship. Um, but with them gone, now you kind of need, I don't see any of the teams out of the, the new 12 being like up oh, gonna win a national championship in the next couple of years. So you're gonna have to build up that reputation over the course of several years. Uh, like I my point is there's two paths to quote unquote legitimacy. Uh winning a national championship or several years of sustained depth and dominance. Um you can argue which one's harder. I, I but I think with Oklahoma in the league, the Big 12 is closer to that path. 
the the one big win and you're good for a few years path. I agree completely with you, but I'll I'll debate you on one point. Is West Virginia and the 11 teams more likely to benefit because one of the 12 teams won a title or is West Virginia and the other 11 teams more likely to benefit because it's a thoroughly competitive league. They haven't put together a national championship team, but boy, it's fun. There's a couple top 25 teams every year. They win some non-conference games and some bowl games. So which is more likely to help the group, a national championship or that competitive from one to nine? Like, what do you think is more likely? Because I don't think you can, I don't think there's a national championship program app that they could add. I think they could add a number of teams that give you that more competitive picture. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, I'm, I think that's definitely the more likely option. So it's going to take them several years yeah. of sustained quality depth in this league to kind of, all right, it's time to stop joking about the Big 12 now. Let's all go back to making fun of the Pac-12. Okay, let's go. It, it, that's fun. Let's go laugh at USC. I mean, just, just a reminder, Kansas State beat the crap out of Stanford, who's supposed to suck, who beat USC, who's supposed to be amazing. So... You know how I like my, uh, you know, common opponent kind of thing. But Big 12's okay. It's going to be fine. I know people don't like it. I know people didn't like the ugly truth of <clears throat> these other leagues didn't find adding the remaining eight teams as uh, financially beneficial. But the Big 12 is going to be fine. They might end up in a better spot with these four just because of the reasons you mentioned of sustained depth, raising the floor, uh, and keeping a good product on the field. Issue now is that of the four teams that are coming in, they've invested in the head coaches and, and the program at the top. I'm not sure how many of the head coaches are still the same. And I'm not sure how many of the eight teams are still here when those four are ready to enter, and that's all I'm going to say. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, man. I'm not getting started. I'm not even going to. I'm not touching that. I'll let Moving you handle on. that. <laughs> uh, all right, let's turn it, the focus back to West Virginia instead of the Big Twelve as a whole. Um, let's go. Let's go. Put you in in somebody else's shoes here, Mike. <clears throat> if you were the opposing team's defensive coordinator, you're the new Bud Foster of Virginia Tech. I know, mm-hmm. How would you scheme against WVU's offense? That's from user Old Seven. I'm probably looking to do something similar what Maryland did and I think what Virginia Tech does. I mean, I'm not sure that we can get into the whole fundamental comparisons about you know, four eyes and heavy gaps and all that stuff. But if you can if you can play man against West Virginia's receivers and you can commit defenders to the box and just take away that run game, you're going to ask the outside receivers and the inside receivers to beat protection. Or excuse me, beat beat pressure. And you're going to ask the protection to hold up just long enough where you give those receivers a chance to just the time they need to maybe shake or make a move or get open. Meanwhile, here comes the pressure. You're outnumbering them or you're even up. I'm not sure however you want to do it, but you're also going to stop the run. So you're going to put more than they can block in the box, either for their pass rush or for a run block. And then I make West Virginia, I don't know, zone runs, gap schemes. I make West Virginia run the ball to get me out of that. And until that happens, I'm going to play man outside, um, you know, however you want to do it with safeties. I'm not sure. It depends on how many you commit to the box, but like 
if, if you take away the seams with, with the safety over like in a cover two, for example, um, they're not going to beat you deep. They're just not like we've seen that. So they're going to have to run the ball to establish play action and their running game isn't working here. Uh, I don't think it's very exotic, which is kind of unfortunate. I think that you can just play pretty base and just be stout in the box and play man on the outside. I was, uh, yeah, I mean, obviously crowding the box, I think is a good move against West Virginia. I, and my first thought was, oh, yeah, you go you go four uh, down linemen, and maybe you still do, but I was thinking, you know, a traditional four down linemen look does not have somebody over center. When I feel like West Virginia has been struggling once they get somebody over center, I always feel like that's a trouble a trouble spot. Um, but yeah, for, I mean, Maryland, heck, Maryland was going eight in the box with a safety as number nine that was kind of near the edge of the box, just daring West Virginia to kind of try to beat them deep and outside. I, I would go eight in the box and I would have my defensive backs in strict man coverage and shading inside, trying to force them out, taking away inside leverage. And, and that would, I wouldn't, I would not stray from it unless I absolutely had to. Yeah. Uh, in the box is an interesting phrase because you can do in the box with eight, for example, but get out of it and then still play like, you know, a, a cover, whatever, where you're going to play coverage, but you're putting defenders close enough where they can really jump into the run game fast. So that's interesting. And then again, if, if they're going to, if they're going to do replays with Daigie, I would think about continuously sending the edge defender, you know, an outside linebacker, not a defensive end, outside linebacker, defensive back. I would continuously send that guy up the line to chase Letty Brown. And if, if Daigie's going to keep it fine, he's not going to beat me around the corner. He may trick me by keeping and the unblocked defender who's chasing Letty Brown. He may get me once or twice. He's, Daigie's not going to run rep- repetitively. He's just not. So I would maybe be aggressive against that, like taking that away and then just dare day to do something in the run game, which I don't think he's comfortable in. You can do that with edge defenders, keep them in the box, but that person can also stay outside and play the pass. Um, I guess the thing is, like, you don't have to be terribly exotic right now because stop the run, control the pass. That's pretty much what any defense wants to do. And I don't know that West Virginia right now has the munitions that can blow you away in the running game and make you vulnerable against the pass. Um, speaking of putting us in the uh, uh, coach's shoes, we got two pretty related questions here. Uh, one was from Slofty03 asking who earned more playing time with their performance this week other than Garrett Green and also J. Mole1989. I'm just going to read them both since they might have end up with the same answers here. Uh, Neil Brown turns the depth chart over to you. After, and after what you have seen through the first two weeks, what changes would you make? Who would you start? Who isn't? And who would no longer be starting come Saturday versus Virginia Tech? All right, let's start with the second one because I think people think that you kind of have to put the paddles on the offense and and bring it back to life a little bit here. I don't know where you make a change. Like, Sean Ryan looked pretty good, but Sean Ryan started last game. Caden Prather looks really good, and Bryce Ford Wheaton doesn't, but I'm not sure that Prather starts above Ford Wheaton. They play a lot, but, like, I think Ford Wheaton still starts. Would you start Michael Lachlan if he's healthy? I would not. Banks has been pretty good in his role. Um, and, oh, hey, they're throwing the, the, no one's throwing the ball to the tight end. They haven't done that in a long, long time here. So it's not like if they put a Lachlan in, all of a sudden they have a receiving threat, especially in his first game back. The only one I could really think of is, you know, would you put Milam in over Moore? I would not to start against Tech. I would not. And then would you put Jordan White in the middle? I know he played and he played well and, and like he pushed more than 
somebody at guard, but would you play him over Nestor, who may or may not be in a cast before long? Would you play him over Gemitter? I don't know. I would not play him over Zach Frazier. I don't think he's the, the number one center right now. I think he can make a push at right guard or left guard. And again, if he's a right guard, maybe Nestor's a left guard. If he's a left guard, maybe Gemitter's in the bench. I don't know, but I can't do that right now. So offensively, I don't see it. And defensively, the only one I would think about it's probably already happened. Like, is Lance Dixon the new Will? Look good. And I think he might have started because they wanted to give him snaps, like put him out there and play. He played as many as X Low. So it's not like he ran away with the job. I liked what I saw from him. He just looks like he has the size, speed, kill combination to be the Will. That's the only change on defense and maybe even on offense I could think of. Uh, I'll get to the second one, but what do you think? Yeah, defense, I'm with you. Uh, Lance Dixon, X Low, you, you know, half dozen one, six or the other for me. I'm fine with that. Uh, offense, I think, is where we're really going to have to start looking at, at things. I have, I'm on record as saying, you know, for me, it's I would make the switch at quarterback. I know that's not, well, actually, I was about to say it's not the popular answer, but I, maybe it is the popular yeah. <laughs> answer. Um, but I just, for me, my stance came to what I said after the game. I just feel like there are so many more plays. I, I there are, green is not perfect. Let's get that out of the way. Uh, He's going to make mistakes. He's going to do all this stuff. But for me, Daigie's already making big mistakes. And almost everything that Daigie does, I think Green, Green can do. While there are so many things Green can do that Daigie cannot. And when your offense is fluttering the way that it's fluttering, you need a spark. And I would make that move. At the very, 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 very least, there would be a an ample Garrett Green package. I uh, think kind of like what the 49ers are doing for you NFL fans out there where they got their new quarterback in Trey Lance and he's coming in for certain plays, certain drives. Uh, on the very first drive for San Francisco the other day, Garoppolo got them down into the red zone and then in came Trey Lance, couple plays, touchdown. Uh, he just provides such a different dynamic and I think Green is the same way with Deggie and I think there is a way to get them both to work. Uh, it won't be easy, but it is something, again, that we know that they have been working on for more than a year. You know, they they were working on that package. They were practicing a Garrett Green package all of last season. Why we didn't see it, I don't know, but maybe we'll see it moving forward. Um, and you touched on the other one, the offensive line, but I don't know the answer. I don't know what the changes are you make. Um, but what's happening now is not acceptable. It, it's not something that it it was bad in the first game, and to get whooped the way they got whooped against LIU is not acceptable. Which way do you make the move? Who do you replace? Who comes in? I don't know. I don't. Because my first thought when Doug Nestor arrived was, you got to start him at tackle. Well, tackle hasn't been great, but the interior, other than Nestor, is, is struggling. And you look at the interior, James Gmitter, he's supposed to be one of your strongest guys. Zach Frazier was one of the standouts as a true freshman, supposed to be better this year. And I don't think anybody on that line, except for maybe Nestor, has played very well through like consistently through both games. Yes, I would agree. Haven't talked about Jaquay Hubbard. And Brandon Yates is not I would I don't say that he's swallowed the key and locked down that job. Um Moore's been okay. Milam's more talented, I think. There's, there's probably no question there, but I don't think he's up there. But those tackle spots have to be better. They have to be better on the edge, and they're going to get pressured. 
they really are. They're going to have to make it work. And then you can also have the, you know, the vulnerabilities inside there. I just think you're going to see more people play. I'm not sure. You, I'm not sure you're going to see wire to wire on the offensive line because I don't think anybody's that good. Maybe the center because you don't want to mess with the center, but the other four I think could certainly take a powder every now and then. Um, just not a lot of changes I would make to the two deep, or at least you know a, a two to a one right now. Uh, to answer who needs more playing time, I'm with you. The Daigie probably should seed some playing time to Green. I still maintain I'd be surprised if we saw Green. I'd be impressed, but I'd be surprised. I just don't like what I heard for, as far as explanations. Um, offensively, I said Jordan White. Prather has to play. I think Prather could be tighter with some stuff. Um, there's probably a reason he doesn't play. It may have to do with mechanics. I don't think he's like the perfect route runner. I don't think he's full go on every snap, especially when he knows he's not involved or it's not coming to him. That can't be. He can't give tells on those plays. But I think he 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 earned a spot out there. He has to go. Has to play. Defensively. I don't know because <laughs> like <laughs> we mentioned Dixon and Lowe and like we I just that depth doesn't exist in a lot of spots. I'm not really in favor of taking fortune or, or doing more than what you're already doing with Porter and Matthews. I know people aren't very happy with Sean Mahone, but I'm not sure what the options are there that are better right now. Maybe later, but not right now. Um, I think I would probably do more with Sean Martin, Jordan Jefferson, Daryl Middleton, Especially now, it looks like he's going to be able to give you something. It was a small dose. I think it was eight snaps, but those are those are good players. Um, and then like Linnell Carr, just if that's your best pass rusher, he's got to be on the field to do stuff. So there's a way to go from three to seven. I haven't mentioned Jalen Thornton, like three to eight. I just think that you continue to rotate those guys in there because uh, they're good. Like it looks like the best thing about their defense is that their defensive line could be relentless just by a combination of having really good players on there, like either Alston, Mesador. Stills, two of those three or one of those three is going to be on there at all times. And then if you put a fresh Jordan Jefferson, Sean Martin, Daryl Middleton, Linnell Carr in there, one or two of those guys with one or two of the others, that's a handful. And I don't that that, that just seems to me like that's the the motor for the defense, and it's the best thing the defense does right now. Keep it fresh, put more of those guys in, play more. All right, uh, two more questions, or well, three because two of these are kind of similar. Uh, Timber Pimp asks. Uh, is Matt Moore kind of on the hot seat? And Blue and Gold 81 asks, is the O-line undercooked, under-talented, or undercoached? Matt Moore's been good wherever he's been. Is it relative? Is he as good as, like, the level of competition at, you know, prior places and it's not up to par here? I don't know that you can answer that, but I do think that, right now, but I do think that three years is an adequate sample size. The trouble is that, the line was good on the outside the first year, did not have a lot of players. The line was better on the inside last year, did not have a lot of players. This line is good in both areas, outside, inside, but not one of them, I think, the outside of the inside, is as good as the best was the previous two years. So they don't have a thing that's as good as either the tackles or the inside last year. However, they had to recruit a lot. And, like, look at who's there. It's transfers, it's converted defensive linemen, it's sophomores, it's guards who are playing tackle, it's people who arrived on campus late, it's transfers, it's everybody there has, like, an asterisk to them. It's not just a person who came in and, you know, redshirted, sat out, lifted weights, and then backed up, started, right? I think a lot of people would tell you that you don't want to see offensive linemen until, like, their third year in the program because you'd much rather have people who are in their third or fourth or fifth year in the program on the field. They don't have that luxury here. You might find that Matt Moore is an excellent coach in a year or two because these guys have been together. This group has a chance to be old 
and and not in too long. Maybe not right now, but a year, two years. You could have all these guys together again, and all of a sudden Matt Moore may look like sliced bread. I do think you also have to wonder about you know push punch power and how much of that is is like off season stuff. I'm not firing Mike Joseph, but if if your common denominator here has been that like you can't get the power that you need to on stuff is everything that makes an offensive lineman powerful where it wants to be. I don't think anybody has a bad word to say about Mike Joseph, but do you look at just like your your mass, your power to run inside stuff, to be able to get outside and be, you know, nimble enough to get out there and powerful enough to make a play? Are the players looking like they're supposed to look? I don't know. I think it's a good question. I don't think it's ever one thing. Sometimes you may just have missed on guys. Maybe the guy's not as good as you thought. Maybe he's a year away as a player. Maybe the coaches are doing stuff that has worked before, but doesn't work for this player, this position, this problem. I just I look at like they were they made they made Kelby Wicklon a good player two years ago. They made Mike Brown a good player last year. They moved Chase Barron around and got him to be productive. Like they've had individual success stories. They haven't had a collective success yet, but I do think this group in time has a chance to be a collective success. And the person who's done some of those things individually, why can't he do them collectively? It just seems like it's a, I know we want to throw arrows or shoot arrows at people. And certainly the coach is the one, but again, I just, it never seems like it's one thing to me. He's going to be in the crosshairs for sure, but that's just kind of like the nature of the job too. Um. Two two points that I was going to make that you already made. Uh, one, he's already been successful in a lot of different places, so you know he can do it. Uh, two, that last point there, that was – thanks for stealing that from me. That was my big thing, uh, was that, hey, we've seen him do it in, with individual players, and it just seems to not have kind of worked, uh, coalesced with the whole group um, here. So that's a, why. We want to know why. Don't know why. But third part here – does it matter? Um, it, mm. If you are in charge of something, a project, a restaurant, a position group, a website, and your thing that you are in charge of is not producing, the finger is going to come down to you. The, the, the people above you are going to look at you. If all of a sudden, Ear Sports was only doing one million page views a month, CBS would call me a mic up and say, what the heck's going on? And if it happened again and again, Mike and I might be out of a job. And that's just how, that's how everything works. It's not just football. Everything works that way. So I think for the question of is Matt Moore, uh, I don't think he said hot seat, but it, how much is on him? It, you're in charge of it. It's on you. That's, that's this responsibility that comes with being paid a six-figure salary and being in charge of a position group. Um, you are responsible for the results from that, but I'm with you, Mike. I don't, I don't know how much falls on him, even though all of it falls on him at the same time. Uh, if, if, if you follow me there, I, I don't know how you fix it. I don't know where the exact problem is because we've seen him have success before. We've seen him have success with individual players, just has not been able to put the whole group together at one time. The bodies are just one thing I think that you can talk about too. I just I wonder about that because I look at defensive linemen they're up against and they're smaller. Um, I look at like their frames and every one of these guys is big enough and can grow too. And again, it may just be that they're they're just kind of young and they can get old together and they could they could look totally different in a couple of years too. So again, I don't I don't think it's a strength and conditioning critique by me. I don't think that anybody wants to like force out Mike Joseph. But if you just say, man, there's there's got to be more of that oomph. 
at the point of attack and it's not there. Um, is it because of the weight room? Is it because these guys, their bodies have to mature? Think about the Sean Martin example. That guy's huge. He's going to be enormous in time. They keep saying that his body has to, his muscles have to catch up to his body. I wonder if the same is true on the offensive line too. You know, it takes some time to do this. And again, you're looking at guys who you know, didn't have the year here last year, obviously in the summer, but again, everybody there has a story too. You know, Hubbard had surgery. Um, you know, this guy was a defensive line. This guy was at another school where things were just went different. Everybody there has a story. You know, I was a true freshman and I played. Um, it just takes time sometimes too. I know nobody wants to hear that, but sometimes you you have to kind of like step back and look at the whole picture and figure out, okay, this makes more sense. I can see these things from a distance now where I'm up close. It, it's kind of hard to spot them. All right. Uh, last question here coming from Nelly1210. Yes, uh, it had a couple people in the in the thread say they really like this question and wanted an answer. So we give the people what they want. Um, this is a long question, so bear with me. Is it safe to say there is at least a hint of an us versus him dynamic brewing between Brown and the fans with the Diggy situation? I know that Brown isn't going to play a guy that feels that he feels is worse just despite the fans, but it does feel like it is becoming a little like the quote, I'm right and I know I'm right. And I'm going to prove to you that I'm right concerning playing Diggy. Um, well, that, that's the gist of the question. Hey, Mike, thoughts? <laughs> so I want to point to text from game day for a second. Uh-huh. I can self-promote. Well, not self-promote, but it is my idea. Brought from the old side to here. There's two texts, well, three texts that are really good. Um, I don't know how the timestamp is for me, so you have to go read it. But one says, what the heck is he doing with Green? And then he says, when he goes one and three with Daigie, what happens? Don't players opt out? I've forgotten about that, Chris. Yeah. If they if they go Daigie... In a, in a spiral, let's say Saturday. I'm not saying this will happen, but let's suppose that Daigie is just kind of himself and, you know, is, is hesitant, some turnovers, you know, 6.3 yards per attempt, and they, they lose 31-21. And Green either doesn't get in the field because of the game or doesn't get in the field and do a whole lot. Or worse, does get in the field and he makes some plays. And then they go and they lose to Oklahoma. You're one and three. That's that four-game window where you can redshirt if you opt out, if you pull a Giovanni Stewart and a Martel Petaway, and as any number of people around the country have done. And it was accusatory, and it was probably in the heat of the moment during that game where you're watching Green come in and do stuff. You're like, oh, yes, yes, yes. Why isn't he back in the field? Why isn't he back in the field? We've explained why that may have not been the case. But there is a point there, too. Like, what if this is divisive and you're saying, man – we have this weapon in offense. We're not using it. My coach is not giving me a chance. And you're a player who who is on the fence as a as a as a guy, or just a guy, a dude, as Brown would say, or just a guy. Or you're a person who's like fed up and says, I've seen enough of this for one year, two years, three years. But you're on a one and three team that isn't going anywhere. It's been tough. How many players have opted out? I think that's an interesting thing I've forgotten about completely. That just opened my eyes. The other one was, Chris, have you seen Hamilton? No. I'm not very cultured. Okay. Um, if you've seen Hamilton, there's a song when I don't want to give it away, but Hamilton uh, steps out on his wife. And the woman's name is Mariah Reynolds. And there's a great song about how he can't say no to this woman, Mariah Reynolds. Um, and the text was <laughs> Garrett Green is Neil Brown's Mariah Reynolds. And he's trying to teach himself to say no to Garrett Green <laughs> because. 
it's the new thing and he, he doesn't but he doesn't want to step out on Jared Dagey. I laughed because I've seen it and I understand it and it was amazing to me just a text that came across. Um, but I wonder if that's a thing too like is Brown tempering himself a little bit? Is there more that he doesn't want to show? Um, coaches will lie to reporters and the fans if it gives them an advantage against the opponent. They do not want to be honest with their opponent. Maybe he's got more up his sleeve with Dagey and Green as a combination. Maybe he likes what he sees in Green, but didn't want to put too much of it out there. Um, maybe that's why he didn't play a whole lot. Maybe he felt good, or he felt like at least that stuff could come to the surface. Um, I just think that it's a tricky thing now, because if they don't play well Saturday and they lose, um, if they don't play well and it's because of the quarterback and they lose, or they win, I don't know. If they win, it probably takes care of it, but... Listen, there's an obvious thing attached to this now. And I, he's he's in the jungle now. He's done this. He's broken the seal. Toothpaste out of the tube. Genie out of the bottle. Whatever. He's got to manage it. He can't keep Green on the shelf. He can't. Unless the Iggy is going to go to another level and play like he has never played before for a longer stretch than he's ever played before. He's got to play Green. And I think that's a great dynamic. And I think you're going to have to wonder about you know locker room, team, because if they go south, and it's the offense that's the culprit and the guy who's holding the ball isn't the guy that people think should be holding the ball. That invites a whole set of dynamics here that you really have to learn to manage. Mike, can I ask you a question? Yeah. If you were presented with doing something that you originally thought was the right way and losing $3 million or doing something that maybe someone else suggested and keeping $3 million and then 3 to $4 million for the next couple of years, which one do you think you'd choose? I, I get your point there. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> like, like yeah. to the point is, is Neil Brown is not purposefully playing the guy that he thinks is worse. Like he will not. Okay. He's, he's not like for those wondering that, that people think he's doing this out of spite. I don't think that's, that's legit. I, I do believe there are a couple factors here at play. Um, the big thing here, and we've discussed this about Neil Brown, we've discussed this about Dana Holgerson, about every, essentially every head coach in football. And, and they get there because of this, but it also could be a downside. <clears throat> they are control freaks. They like to control everything. And you heard Neil Brown, he was, he was not happy that Garrett Green was not doing what he was supposed to. Like he was improvising. He was improvising the whole way. Now the question is, is Garrett Green improvising an offense better than Jarrett Dagey doing what he's told? That's up for someone else on the side other than me, but it's up to Neil Brown. Uh, but it, Neil Brown likes to be in charge, and I think it bugs the ever-living heck out of him that Garrett Green improvises and does his own thing. Because we, we saw I mean, it was pretty obvious, actually, to even – just a, a lay person watching the game of that green kind of called his own number pretty quick on a lot of plays. And, and I think that drives Neil Brown crazy. I think that would drive any head coach crazy uh, unless they really just wanted to let the reins loose. And you trust that quarterback to do that. And I don't think Neil Brown feels that way right now. And I think that's the biggest thing holding back this change is that it is the control and, and not in a bad way, not in a bad way. I think in Neil Brown's mind, his plan and it, the quarterback, maybe, you know, maybe if, if Garrett Green followed the Neil Brown plan, 
he'd make the switch, I think, is is kind of what I'm getting at here. And I think that's part of the reason. It's not that he he is purposefully not doing something, you know, like a little kid. Like, I'm not doing that just because you said so. I think it's a great point. It's one thing to say that Neil Brown is tanking it, right? Right. What if Green tanked it? He went out there with a script and a chance to really put his hands around things. And he didn't do it. That ought to say a lot, right? Provided that's true. I haven't heard anything or anybody say that's not true. So to, to the question's point here, the, the final part of it says it just feels a little intentional with how much Brown has propped up Daigie while being sure to point out how far behind Green is in the competition. What if that's true? Because it might be, right? So I understand that. I, I understand the, the 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 counterpoints, and I understand the the positives that can be drawn from Green. But I just I listened to what Brown said, and I think if you watch it, you could certainly agree with them. And, and again, if he pulled Green for a play just to get his head out of the sand, that says a lot to me too. That says as much as anything else that Brown said after the game. Um, I just I just don't think that sometimes it's as complicated. And again, I, I almost want to admire Brown because if he thinks that he has it right. He's not going to be talked out of it, and you need that as a coach sometimes. It's okay to say, you know what, the crowd really wants me to go for it on fourth and one here at the four-yard line. I'll get 60,000 people in my corner. Maybe we can get a push. It's another one to say, you know what, the crowd really wants me to change my quarterback on a Saturday night for a top 12 team next week. I'm going to go ahead and do it. I would not feel as good about that right there. I'm okay with like taking the crowd's cue sometimes and like an in-game thing about going for it You know, instead of punting or a field goal. But make a massive change like this just because the crowd wants it, I'd, I'd have a hard time supporting unless there were other determining factors in there that support it, which there appears to be an absence of right now. Now, let me um, ask you this. Are you starting green is what you said? For this tech game? Mm. I don't like it. We keep talking about timing. And this is just, it's, I feel like it's like, like three straight games of ter- terrible timing. And maybe it's like, hey, maybe there's never the perfect time to do it. True. But I, I think in order to ease it in, I would I would pull like the, the thing I'm talking about with the 49ers and, and what Brown kind of sort of showed, you know. I'm not talking the third drive. I'm talking you got the Garen Green package. And, and it could come at any time. It could come on the first drive if you get in the red zone. It could come on the second. It could be the entire third drive. Who knows? I would have him in there and where he's playing, you know, maybe 20 snaps a game, 25 snaps a game to, to see what's going on. Uh, and, and it's one of those game flow things. I think, you know, maybe if Daggy's six of six and, and took his team right down the field to the eight yard line, maybe I don't take him out. Um, or, or maybe that that second drive is no longer the Garrett Green drive. I don't know. But starting him against Virginia Tech. I don't know. Maybe I don't start him, but it, it, see, I would rotate him in there, see how things go, and maybe he's starting the second half because that's the other part of this, the fit with this team and the makeup of it right now. Um, well, we've discussed it a good bit on this very podcast. The offensive line stinks right now. It's bad. You know what helps when your offensive line is bad? A quarterback that can scramble, a quarterback that can get out of the pocket, that can extend the, extend a play, can get out and run, and – can make plays with his feet that then forces the opposing team's defense to kind of rein in those blitzes, rein in that pass rush, and then all of a sudden it opens up and it it takes the pressure off that offensive line. So 
Man, you, yeah, I'm in a tough spot there because I've been a big, big advocate of green. I would make a switch to, I, but I would, I, I kind of want to ease into it. Maybe that's me taking a half measure here, but I, I would ease into it, see how things go in that first half, and then maybe make the switch at halftime or kind of wait till after the Oklahoma game. You would agree that what San Francisco and even the Bears did with their backup quarterbacks mm-hmm. affected, right? Yeah. You would also agree that. A year ago, West Virginia was better. I would say darn right good in the red zone last year. Very good. And I think that that maybe that answers why we never saw the Garrett Green package that we kept hearing about, because I kept hearing that it was it was for the red zone and they didn't need it. Sixteen touchdown passes. Sixteen touchdown passes, one interception in the red zone. And the interception was against Maryland, which counts. Don't get me wrong. Um, two rushing touchdowns in the red zone too. So eighteen to one touchdowns the turnovers. Um, did take more field goals and touchdowns at the end of the year, but that's a tough thing to do. Like that's something he has been good at and they have plays that he is comfortable with. And I'm just wondering, can you trust green to stay on the script where you really got to be on script and on time, in the red zone, things happen so fast. The spaces are so tight. I do think there's a thing where, you know, let's, let's say that punt returner X, I don't know who it is as Dale Winston Wright said he was going to be back returning punts against tech. I don't know about that, but Let's say that they, they bring a ball back from the 20 to the 35, the other 35, right? And it's a 45-yard return, and Mountaineer Field's bopping. That's interesting. That might be when I saw Green in, because all of a sudden, that quick transition, Tech has no way to prepare for it. You're not seeing him warm up on the sideline during a timeout and get his helmet and go. He's getting on the field right away. Catch him skating a little bit. That That's interesting. There, there's times or spots. Can the staff be on top of it and ready to go? We'll see. They should be. But, you know, that organization has to to be prepared for situations like that too so um i mean again i think we can see him play i just i just wonder just based on what brown said and what we saw i just uh boy that's sometimes the devil you know is the devil you trust yeah and then you put me in that spot that i i put brown in earlier i i talked about switching green switching green switching green and then it's like okay now three million dollars is on the line uh okay so it's all about perspective and situation. And I guess we'll find out on Saturday. We will. And we'll have plenty of perspective. Talk about many situations on the website all week. Neil Brown speaking later today, um, 1140 in the morning, maybe already out by the time that you all hear this. But we'll have his thoughts and then a regular Tuesday and standard rest of the week coming up until the noon kickoff Saturday. Chris, anything you want to plug, anything you need to add? Uh, no, we're going to have our usual stories up. I'm going to catch up with a couple recruits, a lot of, a handful of guys that were on campus for that first game, uh, home opener, you know, you, you want to have a few, you always want to have a few recruits at every game. Uh, but when you're playing Long Island university, maybe that's not one that you're trying to bring in all the top recruits to, uh, there were a handful of guys, a couple guys with offers, um, Rodney Gallagher there, a big time recruit right there. Uh, but you know, he's nearby, so he might be coming up a few times over the course of the next year or so. Uh, one of their top targets, a few walk-on targets on campus, too. So um, recruiting, picking back up, I, I would expect a, a healthy showing of, of some top recruits. Not officials, I don't think. Uh, maybe one or two, but uh, none set at this time. But a good bit of unofficial visitors for that game. Well, stay tuned. We'll keep you updated if you are plugged in can't believe it man first time tech in a long long time at home here 16 years unbelievable mm-hmm. i yep. can't forget about that game in Orlando over in 2017 uh the first will greer game but 
boy, the last time they were here, um, the only time that West Virginia lost that year, huh? Yeah. Feels like, well, not like yesterday. That's kind of the opposite, but it feels like it's been a long time ago. But, it, man, they're so familiar and they're, they're, they were here so often. It seems like it's uh, not quite that long ago. Well, um, I don't know. We don't have to wait any longer. We can talk about it now. We'll get to it sooner and later on the website. Until then, I am Mike Casaza. And I'm Chris Anderson. We'll talk to you next time.